So that way they have really good information to help contribute thoughts and ideas. And I think above all, to have that kind of listening framework, to always be listening and being considerate is a big part of what I think design has done for me as a leader. Welcome to the What is UX podcast, the show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pongpat. Welcome to today's episode of What is UX? And in today, we have a guest from uh, Tide Cleaners. His name is Ryan Taus. He's the lead product designer at Tide Cleaners for almost four years, along with a talented crew of designers and developers. We have an entire suite of applications that help run operations, customer service, and improve the guest experience that make laundry as convenient as just using your thumb. Before that, Ryan worked at America's largest church, Life Church, and it was at this time that his career made a switch from uh, graphic design to product design. And he went and from contributing to art direction and brand creation to just about every aspect of the digital space of Life Church. Ryan also comes from agency life and understands how fun and exciting that could be, and as well as he taught design as well. So welcome to the show, Ryan. It's a pleasure to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here and can't wait to dive into the conversation today. <laughs> and uh, one thing to noteworthy to mention is that Ryan is part Cherokee and part Filipino. And we've, we've had hey. a slew of Filipino designers, including uh, Jamie DeHansen. Call a shout out to you on a designer at Basecamp, 37 Signal, and as well as from Grab. So you are uh, fantastic. Yes, happy, a long line of happy Filipino. and humble to be part of, <laughs> of of that recognition for sure. Way to go, guys! <laughs> yes, but first Cherokee on the show, so yay! Hey. <laughs> Here we go, opening up doors. Yeah. So, so tell us about Tide Cleaners. Actually, it was uh, formerly Pressbox. What's the relationship of Pressbox? There. Yeah, so there's actually quite a few relations with uh, the campus model that was University Laundry. It got acquired uh, by Tide. And before even Tide Cleaners, I think they were Tide Dry Cleaners. And so there's even a name change there. There was also an acquisition with uh, our locker, locker model, which was formerly known as Pressbox. And even in that business model, there was actually an incubated team and uh, called Tide Spin which offered oh, wow. a similar service as Pressbox. And so they kind of came together and then all three of us came together and now we are known as Tide Cleaners. Awesome. So tell us about this business and, and what you do there. Yeah. So when you think about Tide, you know, like dry cleaners in general, there's probably one on the corner. It's probably a mom and pop. There's there's, there's a few big known brands out there as well, but you might know them as a detergent, one of the biggest PNG brands out there on the market on a global scale even. We use you guys, so I help to, happy to help pay your paycheck. <laughs> awesome, man. Yeah, keep, keep it going and you're going to get the best clean and best smell at the same time. So just know that it's scientifically backed. You know, I think when you think about PNG, they're always innovating. They're always looking for new landscapes. And with a, a brand like Thai, there's just more opportunity there. So about 10 years ago or more, they kind of did... They incubated this idea internally, spun up like a sister company, Agile Pursuits. And that's where they got into this um, industry of dry cleaning. And so for the past 10 years, they've built up that brand and they've acquired some people and some new businesses. And when I join into this uh, kind of narrative, it's about developing software for them. Now, the dry cleaning industry is really ran on one or two platforms. It's been there for decades now. 
And so when Tide, and you, again, the pedigree of PNG is innovation and doing new things, they wanted to do that with their software stack as well. And they're looking to do a couple of things, streamline the way the industry is run. So from an operational standpoint, how can technology solve those problems to make this business uh, more attractive to franchise, but also just better and easier to run? How does it provide a better guest experience by leveraging a technology stack that's homegrown, right? And so those are some of the things they wanted to accomplish. And that's where I entered into the picture and, and stepped onto a team that was building that from scratch for them. Amazing. And the, you know, if we were to check out the experience, it's not, you know, the, what you guys are working on is not just the consumer experience, right? There's, there's lots of personas, yes. I assume. So can you tell us <laughs> a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, there's a franchiser persona, there's our stakeholders. So just business operators within our own team, things that they need to do to get clothes done and, and clean through a, and process through a plant. So we have software that's kind of all about garment intake, processing, tracking. It also serves as like a, a point of sale system. So where guests can check in their stuff. And then when they come back in, it's going to know where the stuff was, where their items are. And it's going to allow them to check those out, release those garments. So we get things back to the right person and everything's real accurate. And let's let them pay for it all in the same experience. So there's the guests in that scenario. There's the people who are processing, which we call them guest service representatives. So that tool's geared to them. And then we have drivers. So there's a service where drivers actually go to the home or they go in the inner cities and go to different locations to service locations where guests would put their items into a locker. We have a device, a mobile device, which aids the driver in their route and, and knowing where to go, what lockers to pick things up. And again, to track all that in a system uh, where people can see, okay, cool. We've got everything at that location and we can manage everything from a back of house standpoint as well. So lots of personas, pretty much any facet of persona and product uh, we get to touch for sure. It's, it's, it's fun. It, it sounds uh, like one part, you know, Amazon locker, one part like Lyft slash Uber, you know, kind of like yes. you know, sprinkles of, of different startups kind of combined together to, to provide this one seamless experience. Exactly. And I think that's a fun part about this time in industry is there are a lot of like cross references of like other business services that are happening and, and Tide's definitely exploring all options. Very cool. That's a great uh, summary of what you're doing now. How did you get into design? <laughs> well, I, I think it's a similar story for a lot of designers. It's like I was, was always drawing, was told I was really good at that. And then going through high school, getting into art school and classes, and then going into college. Interesting enough, I was actually going to be an architect. So kind of advanced the, the skill set there and, and math was not something I really wanted to step into. So that's where I reassessed a few things and uh, decided to pursue a, a BFA in, in graphic design. So again, leveraging kind of that artistic skill set. But I've always kind of had this like business mindset as well. And so I felt like graphic design, I partnered that with marketing. So I minored in marketing as well. And that's where really it set the foundation after graduating from, from college with that BFA in graphic design, getting into the agency life, learning what it looks like to work with real clients and, and provide a branding set, logo sets, websites, and, and commercials. Just sinking my teeth into all that is where everything really got started for me. Yeah, I think I actually haven't covered this in in any episode that I, when I was younger, I liked drawing too. And then 
you know, when you're young, particularly mm-hmm. like to draw dinosaurs and all that stuff. And I was told I was pretty good at that. You know, I could draw <laughs> horses and other animals pretty well. And so I always liked drawing. So yep. graphic design was, was natural. Although I never really did have a tablet or anything like that, like a Wacom tablet or. No way. I didn't have it, you know, like other more serious designers. But then, yeah. I eventually got one of those. You got one? Nice. <laughs> eventually. Nice. It was a. A college gift at some point, I think. Yeah. And what was the transition from graphic designer to say UX or product design happen? How did that happen? Yeah. So I, I would I'm say I'm like six, eight years into just being a, a, a graphic designer, a few years at the agency. And then out of the agency, I went for a nonprofit called Life Church. And there continued to just leverage my skill set. And this ranged everywhere from like many different types of branding and creative co- collateral, multi-million dollars worth of stuff here to event planning and art direction and those types of things. And what's great about my time there was Life Church is a multifaceted kind of organization. It is a church, but it is a very technologically driven organization. And so within that, they had an interactive team which worked with all of their websites and eventually the app and the giving platform and whatnot. And with that, there's always been this like tinkering with the internet. So they had a church platform that leverages live online church um, is really the forerunner of that technology. And so I had the opportunity to step into a role on that interactive team because I had a real peaked interest in taking what those fundamentals I've learned in graphic design and applying them into a digital space that's way more flexible and just to me a lot more, I could connect with people, which is original intent of architecture as well, was creating spaces in which people could interact. And so I think that's why I really wanted to step into product design when it really became a thing too, uh, where it was like, hey, this is a, a fun new opportunity for people to do design and execute design. And kind of during that transition and when product design became more of a thing that people knew about as well. So that's yeah. how I got into it. It's become, yeah, especially now. I mean, it's so, so common, but yeah, I think in the early days, I wasn't sure. Maybe like parents didn't know this was a viable career for their children. It wasn't even an option really going through <laughs> school. And, you know, nowadays, even in my old program at OSU, it's like there is product design. So it's branding and graphic design. They have a product digital focus now. So it wasn't even offered in my schooling, you know? Yeah. It's, it's great. I, you know, when I opened my business and we were next to a school with a BFA program, yeah, that, that wasn't necessarily a focus offering. It might've been a class, right. As part of BFA, like you might do a lot of print, you know, a lot of maybe like a little bit of 3d modeling, a little bit of kind of like graphic design, and, uh, you know, there may be an, a, an assignment or a project of designing an app. And then that would be, you know, just a sliver of that, right? Like you get a taste mm-hmm. of it, right? Sure. And uh, it was really, it was hard to, you know, a, as an employer for me, it was like, that's just not enough experience, right? Just kind of having that one assignment where the majority of our work is designing digital products. Mm-hmm. So if, if, you know, having a focus program, right, if this is what you want to do and you know that, having that, that focus and, and having that, that amount of training and years in, into school it would be very beneficial for the market. <laughs> yes. So it was a good time for me. And I was thankful to have a really strong designer when I, dra- I joined Interactive who helped because I think the hardest hurdle was 
being a graphic designer, you're dealing with things and, and sandboxes that don't scale, that don't move, that don't have that interactive component to it. And so those are the skill sets that I didn't necessarily have with me as I transitioned all the layouts and understanding what looks good. I had that understanding. And so I was very fortunate. His name was Clint McManaman. He was, re- he really took me under his wing and, and helped escalate my, my learning to become more proficient and efficient as a designer to understand this new world that scales and moves and, and creates new windows and all that kind of thing. So that was really crucial for me. Yeah. How big a design team do you lead now? Yeah, so we have two designers on the team, and we're a pretty nimble group, as you can imagine, with you know the suite of technology that uh, we're contributing to. And on top of that, we've even kind of contributed some branding and marketing po- creative power there as well. So though we're small and nimble, so that would be three, including me. We get a lot done, so they're they're very talented designers on the team for sure. Yeah. So you've over the years you've had to hire, learn how to hire. I love to. I know you have some tips on hiring, so I'd love to dig into that and and uh, you know, what are some of the insights and stuff so that we can add some value. <laughs> yeah, I think you know from my experience, I got thrown into that hiring process when our team's scaling and we're we're starting to get the need to hire new designers. We actually didn't have a process, and for me, that was the, having a process and defining that designing that, aka, was really important to not only making sure a process was created, because I think it's really important to create a process that removes and eliminates as much bias as possible. Because it's whether you're wherever you're posting this, how you're writing, um, and how that comes across to any subgroup of people, you need to be really aware of how you're broadcasting that net. So that way you do attract ranges of talent, ranges of backgrounds, and ranges of experience. And so design it up front, know exactly how you're going to execute it was really important to me. And that was as simple as just creating a document and saying, what are our phases? What does a phone interview look like? What are some of the key questions that we want to grab and creating those templates? And in each phase, what are the things that we're trying to accomplish in each phase? And really designing it again around the end user, the interviewee, and making sure it's a great experience for them because it's also a way for them to connect to our brand and our culture. And so again, it's just about being intentional up front and designing those things. So that was a really key tip for me because that, that helps bring everybody along in that process from the interviewee to the design team as they jump into these interviews. They're equipped with something in front of them that helps them better have the conversation as well as um, knowing what the expectation is to help contribute and make sure that every, like we really get the best out of these experiences, get the information we need, as well as the connection we're looking for with the people that we're interviewing. You know, in a phase, we're trying to accomplish something. And what is that? That needs to be super clear internally. And then within that phase, there are those questions or those exercises and mm-hmm. values are attached to each of those sections. So, It's like, what is it that we're trying to, the value that we're trying to extract in this moment that needs to be super clear because I think in doing that, that allows for that freedom in the moment, in the interview, in the conversation, in the exercise to kind of expand upon that and and do a little bit of, uh, what do you call that when uh, actors are just kind of like free forming? I'm forgetting the term right now. Um, Improv, improv. Improv. So it allows for in the moment improv, but it's always going to tie back and anchor down into a value. So everybody understands kind of the outcome we're driving towards. And so 
yeah, having a plan that's also rooted in those values and making it very explicit is super helpful for allowing people to have ownership and you know provide their own personal flair to the conversation as well. Yeah. Give us an example of that at, at Tide. Like what, what values are you trying to screen for and then how you go about it? Yeah. So when we're working with them, I think it's super important that we're, we're, we're trying to understand, are they asking a lot of questions? And I think we're looking for people who aren't afraid to ask questions. And we're not necessarily looking for people who come to the table knowing that you know, how to do these things. So in an exercise, we may not be giving them a lot of information up front because we're hoping those gaps heighten the sense of like, I need to ask questions. I need to reach out to the people in this room. So again, providing like the opportunity to showcase uh, communication as a skill set, uh, collaboration as like something that drives the need to finish the uh, ec- exercise. And then the willingness to adapt and take feedback as, as people contribute to that conversation. And so those are some of the values that we might have outlined in an exercise. And why that's helpful is it knows exactly, it puts an expectation on the interviewee from our standpoint, and we're hoping that they can meet those criteria. It's also super helpful for the team because we know why there's that awkward silence. And you know, I think as humans, we want to be there and like rush in and like, oh, here, I'll give you the answer. But that, again, helps really set the expectation that, hey, we want to see this in practice from this person, and this is a key value that we're looking for. So that's why let's hang back. We're driving that value. Let's see if it comes out. Yeah. That's a great segue into the importance of values. What happens? uh, Why are they important? And what happens when we get it wrong? Oh, man. Some huge (laughs) implications. And for me, my journey in, in the values is, you know, joining this team, I was the first of five founding kind of people that first got hired here. And as we've grown, it's like we exemplified the things that we wanted in the team. So it was just kind of, um, innately held and and exampled. But as we add people to the team, as I became a leader, as a manager, it's quick that with every addition, there's almost like a loosening of that understanding or the ability to not fully uh, see it and uh, encourage it or correct it. And so the values are a great way of putting something down on paper and cultivating that together if you can with the team, which is what I did with my design team. We created kind of like the design team values. And then we also created some product principles. So it created a shared experience. It helped us kind of work through interpersonal dynamics to feel like we're all listening to each other. We're all having empathy. We're all hearing each other. And we've able to kind of put all of our opinions and facts and and say, this is what we're going to live by as a team. This is how we're going to treat each other. And then when it comes to the product kind of principles, that was how as a team, when we design something, when we talk about our product, when we give feedback, this provides us a framework that we can consistently kind of judge and critique each other's decisions around and say, well, was that a delightful experience? Because that's a principle that we're, we're talking through. And if it doesn't quite meet that, we're going to swarm around that. We're going to make sure that we create a delightful experience because that's a North Star for us. It's good, right? When, when there's ambiguity, there's something to refer to, right? Like, 100%. Yeah. Amazing. And we're all agreed upon it too. It's not like a, a <laughs> mandate, you know, especially the way we got to do it. It was uh, all of us helping to define and set these parameters in which we're going to operate. And so I think just the practice in itself was super helpful. And then the outcome of having them, just kind of continues to foster that environment for us. Yeah. But having it and also putting it out there in public, it also kind of helps self-select people who value those things, right? 
if you value delightful experiences, then you're going to filter out people who are like, Hey, I just want to make it work and move on. You know, <laughs> exactly. like it's done. Right. And it's like, that's a self-selecting group. Like, ah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe this place is not for me or something. Yes. A hundred percent. How has design helped create a better organization? How has have design principles helped help make you better, a better leader? Wow. I think for me, the way I would answer that is it helps me work from the end rather than working from the beginning. So, and I think it, you can sum it up with, and I'm still trying to wrestle with like a better term for this, but the end user, uh, I don't really like saying the word user and human almost sounds too general. And sometimes you can get very specific, like we can say guest, but when talking about very generally the end user and just working that way. So as a designer, our process is very much geared for that discovery exploration and making sure that not only are we solving a problem, but we're handling it in a caring kind of way that provides the best outcome, not only as a result, but as an experience, right? So it's not only turning a customer into this transaction bit that makes money for the business, but it also creates an experience that is really nice for the guests and they feel a certain value when they use the service and that's what keeps them coming. And so from a, a leader, it's like uh, design has been helpful and, you know, designing the hiring process, designing the values, and also how do we communicate how our product evolves, our product uh, features back up when we have those meetings with C-suite people or our state internal stakeholders. You know, It's like making sure that our presentations and the way we communicate our designs is thoughtful for their time constraints, um, very clear, so that way they have really good information to help contribute thoughts and ideas. And I think above all, to have that kind of listening framework, to always be listening and being considerate is uh, a big part of what I think design has done for me as a leader. Yeah. I think design practitioners are, are great about having user empathy, right? And they have mm -hmm. that cap or lens of having user empathy when it comes to doing the actual design work. I think where what I can take as you know, as I've become a leader and I can apply it even to myself is like, sometimes I have challenging times and it's important to have that lens of like, at the end of the day, you know, my people, you know, are the guests of my company, right? Are, are the end user and like, what experience am I trying to craft? You know, what, what experience am I giving them? And that, that really helps me kind of pull back a little bit and say, okay, this is not the experience I want for them. And or maybe it is, right? Like what's the experience I want to design and, and for them to have their feel as they're experiencing their day in the life of, you know, the company. Yeah. And I think to add to that, it's like, we're able to say the way it's designed. And so one part of being a designer too, is like you design something and you put it out there and somebody uses it. Now on a good day, it, it, <laughs> expectations get matched, right? Like, okay, the cool. happy path. The way I thought they would do that. <laughs> they did all the things. A way in which we learn and grow is you do that, you set it out there and they do something you didn't think about, or they did it in order that you wouldn't have expected them to. The thing is it was designed, like the end result was designed either way. And so you can't blame that it didn't, they didn't do it the right way. And so as a leader, that makes you even more empathetic that like, okay, if the team's unhappy or if morale's not going on, or if communication's not quite being clear and transparent, I've designed it this way, but the reaction to it's different. So I do have to go back to the drawing board 
I've gotten my feedback and I have to go back through those processes and improve the experience. Yeah. And so I think that also has equipped us as design leaders to, to think in, in terms of that, of not being frustrated and like, well, you're just not using it. Right. <laughs> you're right. Not, right. Our team wasn't designed where, you know, here's the, here's the principles, but it, it extends far beyond that to be more considerate and make those improvements. And we know the process to put it through to, to continue to iterate, learn and grow. That's oh man, that, that's deep and great advice. And <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's very meta. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Has your background or cultural, you know, ethnic background, influ- you know, how does that play into mm. your career in life? I think you're the first person to ever ask me that question. So thank you. <laughs> so on thinking about it, I think I have a very unique background. My experience, you know, I went to a predominantly all-white private school, a Christian school at that. And so I think with that, I am not completely white, you know, but it's also like, what am I? I think I get mixed up with different types of um, ethnicities and I'm very okay with that. But I think that ambiguity is what I'm getting at or that kind of like not things really predefined with me has really helped me integrate, become part of, be accepted in places where I'm also accepted with the group of people, the uncool kids, so to speak. And I've always had good relationships with them. So I've always felt like this floater is the term I like to use where I was very much loved and accepted by, you know, the cool kids and a good friend there. But then I also always had the heart and I could always connect and relate with and be friends with the uncool kids. And I think having that perspective has influenced me in my career and as a designer, because I think I still have those traits. I'm not afraid to go stick my head into a C-suite meeting and be myself and, and be the person that's like, I don't think this will work. Or I think everyone probably understands what you're talking about, but I don't. Could you explain it to me differently? I'm okay with doing that because I know like that's the way I had to operate in those, those fears growing up. And I've learned to adapt and, and be okay with being the different person, I mean, it usually worked out in my benefit. So I think that's that's how I would probably answer that question. Yeah, and I think that experience for us just drives toward like being open to being flexible, to to having empathy for both kind of groups of people uh, and ways you can connect and help educate the other cool kid group because of your ability to understand someone else's perspective, which I think maybe doesn't come as natural to those, that group of, of, of people. And so we, you know, we learn to be that bridge and it's kind of a cool place to be. It's stressful at times and it can be hurtful at times, but I think all in all, it's, it's a nice place to be a bridge. Yeah. Now, now we're going to take it back to tides and jump over. Let's do now, it. Let's, so given that tide, tide, you know, the, the, the tie cleaners product is, I'm assuming the, the persona, you know, what, what is the typical persona, right? Like you, it's a consumer product. So this is not like an enterprise B2B is there's no assumed knowledge of stuff. You're probably designing for a very wide group of people. How have you yeah. folks uh, think about that in terms of accessibility and, and kind of like tech savviness and all that stuff? Yeah. So I think as an organization, we have, you know, connections to PNG, and when you think about personifying and market research, PNG is really excellent at that. And so there are definitely aspects of our team through research and analysis and marketing. We have a game there. I think it's the challenge that doesn't sit on the shelf, but it's more of service. 
And then I think we have the added challenge of it's a the service is very dynamic in that they have acquired and created a business model that you know can grow and scale with somebody. So whether that's the college student whose parent signs them up for a plan and pays for it, and all they have to do is use it to getting their first job, seeing a drop store on a corner, downloading the app, logging into their what might be their you know current account, now switching over to a pay-per-use, dropping things off in the locker, getting my dry cleaning because now I got to wear nice stuff to go to the job interview or, or go to the wedding or whatnot. To now I'm a parent, I'm probably in a wealthier bracket of society as well. And so I'm probably more prone to want to do a service like home delivery, where I'm comfortable providing and giving access to you know this service that way. Or I'm dropping things off on the way to soccer practice at a store and getting my clothes cleaned off and, 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 and done that way or running to, to work. And, and on my way back home, I'm picking these things up as I go into dinner, you know? So it's a very dynamic thing. And we are continuing to find ways to marry. How do we know and do the best practices on that research? Cause PNG really accelerates that. And then how do we continue to infuse that to inform our product decisions and how we offer our service and it's multi-stacked and that's where it starts to get, it's a little bit slower and cumbersome to get through when you think of like teams of people needing to make operational decisions, marketing decisions, and then how do we form a tech stack around that very dynamic service? So we're still learning that. And I think that's our biggest challenge at the moment, but it's, it's been fun. Yeah. And, and what, what practices do you guys do at Tide Cleaners so that everybody can have user empathy you know, for example, you just recently came up in the news that DoorDash, you know, they, they want everybody to kind of, you know, once a month do that delivery to kind of have that user empathy. Yeah. And then there's some rumblings around that where senior execs are <laughs> like, why, why should I have to do this and whatnot? Yeah. Talk, talk to us about that. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. That was actually something our team was passing around and, and, and discussing too, because that's actually, we've, it's from the top down. So Katie Cool is the CEO. She, she, there is a sign up and an expectation every month, especially if you're near a tide like plant to go work there for a certain amount of time. So that's an expectation. So all the execs, they, they, they have like their monthly routine of going into the store and becoming a GSR, working the counter, processing clothes in the back to build the empathy, not only from an operational standpoint, right? Like how we're processing these garments or cleaning these garments and the expectation put on the person to do that operationally. But again, from a technological standpoint, it's also testing and building empathy for what we've created for them to use. And so from the top down, from the C-suite, all the way down to a product team like us, that's an expectation that we have. So every time we've visited the corporate store, we go out, we hang out with them and we're sitting there contributing and, and helping out where we can. And that's how our journey started too, is we didn't show up and, and have the answers. We didn't even look at the software that they were using. We just showed up, watched and observed them and asked them what they wanted and saw what they were, what their most frustrations were. And as we built the product, we set it in front of them and let them tell us how it was doing and validating the, the assumptions. And if we didn't get it right, go back to the table until we did get it right. So it's very much always been hands-on. And that's an approach that is kind of directed from the top down. And I'm really excited to be able to say that before even the DoorDash thing came out. Like that was, that was a practice that was recommended and, and already put into play. 
Yeah, it's it's great when you see that from from the top down. For example, like even in the early days of, for example, like my QuickBooks Intuit. I know you know as a user, like everybody in the company has. They they even have programs for this and infrastructure where I think once a month everybody has to spend at least an hour with a. A QuickBooks customer, and they have this whole program set up where there's incent- incentives, right? Like if if I want to participate, like I might get a survey. It's like, hey, we we want to study you, and we want to show you some mockups, or we want to see how you use QuickBooks. They have this gift card program, like hey, you sign up yeah. and you'll get this gift card program, whatever. And they've been doing that forever. And I, I just thought that that's such, such a great practice. And again, like you know, CEOs or C suites who come from the consumer world. They totally get that spending time with the users <laughs> to, to get that insight. Like you said, you know, like PNG. Whenever you can come from a mass consumer world, this is kind of like that's the table stakes, right? <laughs> that's what you get. Yeah, right. yeah, and they're they're very relational and and human centered to begin with, and I think that that goes into that decision of creating a culture where the team we're all in this together and we're the team and we can't just think through the philosophical way this should work like how does it actually end up in practice and and the way we train people and the way we execute on our promise of you know making this such a easy taking a chore and making it just like an afterthought because it's just automated now um so we're on we're on the way to doing that i think awesome as we get up on time are there any resources, aspiring designers, you know, in terms of stuff that you recommend, you constantly reference, or, you know, kind of like your favorite design books, blogs, podcasts, whatnot, anything is fair game. Yeah, I'm kind of all over the place. I think for me, Twitter is where I constantly engage in the conversation. And I'm not really good at creating the list, but I'm really good at bookmarking. So I'm just constantly saturated with the conversation of the design world of the product world. And so that's where I would recommend it too. I like that it's less visual and more conversational, that platform. It's not always a great conversation, but I think we've honestly, the, the, the culture of the designers out in the world, I think we've been more intentional about creating a better place uh, to have that conversation and improve that dialogue there on, on Twitter. A book that I constantly reference and I'm ashamed that I can't just look over my left shoulder. I must have moved it here. No, here it is. It's Product Leadership. It's an O'Reilly book. How to, you know, it's by Richard Banfield, Martin Erickson, and Nate Walkingshaw. I came across this book as I made that transition from graphic design to product designer. And I'm still fascinated by product leadership and what it just takes to not only just make a really great product, but I think good products come from building great teams. And so that's the focus of this book. I think it gives you many aspects of like different ways people approach this and uh, some of the benefits and some of the cons. It's a very short read and it's kind of something that I constantly check myself on or a kind of reference back to see how things are evolving. And I would say it's a pretty good source of truth in terms of giving someone that like benchmark of like how to, how to do this well and create good teams, how to structure teams and what, what it might look like to keep things really healthy. That's been a good good resource for me. Thanks for that. Yeah, the, the best books are ones that you're constantly referring back to. It's almost like a you know, textbook there. Yeah, and as far as designers, you know, I got my graphic design background. So, you know, Michael Beirut 
is one of, and Paul Rand are some of my like rock star designers and where I've evolved my own, you know, ethos of philosophy, design philosophy. I, I love those guys and anything I can get my hands on in terms of what they've written or even, you know, seeing what they've done in the world really inspires me to be a better designer. So those would be a couple of designers. I know they're old school, but uh, that's kind of where I am as a person. I love the old school stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it gives insight on the, uh, you know, this podcast is mostly audio. So people don't know uh, people's age and stuff, but sometimes, you know, when you talk about these things, you kind of give away your, <laughs> your age, <laughs> age range of it. You know, yeah. Uh, these references. Paul Rand's from like uh, the fifties and the sixties, yeah. Michael Barut, you know, he's with Pentagram um, Pen- and, his yeah, partner, and as exactly. a partner now, but uh, he was with Massa, Massa Milio, Vignelli. There we go. And so, you know, American airlines and the subway system maps, uh, he was on the team when, when, when Vignelli was doing all that work. So yeah, definitely yeah. dating myself for sure, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. Well, we, we have all sorts of designers. I try to c- cover the gamut and, and not kind of pigeonhole and, and the more diversity we can do on this yeah. show, the, the better. Right on. Yeah. hundred percent, dude. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. It's been very insightful and I really enjoyed our conversation. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. And yeah, I've really enjoyed it too. It's been fun. It's been a blast. Oh, oh my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of What is UX? If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guest and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one.